How a changing city will shape the mayoral race. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how you doing? I'm good. It's hot out, Ben. It feels it's like summertime out. out there. It is yeah. hot out. It is summer. It is uh, approaching Memorial Day weekend. And uh, it is the heat of the race for mayor, at least the Democratic and Republican primaries, and many other races across the city. It's crunch time. We got a few more days. We have a few more days. I think right after Memorial Day weekend is where I'm considering it the, you know, that's it. That we're, we're basically three weeks out from primary day at that point. Uh, you know, this coming Tuesday will be three weeks out. And that's where, you know, absentee ballots are already flying all over the place. And uh, and early voting is, is starting June 12th. So we're getting real close here to uh, to crunch time and the heat of it. Um, totally. I feel like time. I feel like many of the sort of chips that were waiting to fall into place in earlier months and weeks, uh, many of the endorsements, the questions about uh, whom newspapers would pick, uh, who major figures would get behind and unions, um, those are all basically spoken for. We've already had one debate um, in the Democratic side. So, yeah, I think the from this point out, it feels, or perhaps you're right, as of Monday, uh, sort of the stretch run where it's really just about communicating with voters and uh, and you know trying to manage uh, manage that that aspect of the campaign. So yeah, we're definitely we're definitely down to it. Absolutely, and we are even more down to uh, the final Max and Murphy uh, for for the Murphy for Murphy. <laughs> um, as we as we mentioned on last week's show, which was the next to last show for Jarrett. Uh, although hopefully we'll we'll be having you back in a guest capacity, but um, this is the last week on the show for Jared after uh, five years of us doing this together in some form and, and, and several years here on WBI. What's it been? Three, three or so years on almost WBI. three years. Yeah. 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 So, um, so this is it. I think in case people missed it last week, uh, you're heading off to nursing school soon. That's right. Uh, a career change, a life change. And we, we wish you the best of luck and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that at, uh, at the end of the hour. So folks should stay tuned for Jarrett's departing words of wisdom uh, and, ref- and reflections. And fittingly, the rest of the show will be after Ben and I talk through some of the exciting developments just in recent days or even hours in this campaign, will be one of the people who helps me to form what limited wisdom I have about city politics. That's the uh, scholar and historian and professor John Mollenkopf. Uh, one of his books was among the first that I read to really understand New York City politics when I came to the city as a, a college student in the mid 1990s. Uh, and John will be on to talk about some of the demographic trends shaping this race and interesting things to look at as as the campaign winds down. And finally, after June 22nd, as we start to see some numbers, just how the city's makeup, its its ethnic and racial um, divisions and uh, communities, as well as other potential demographic factors, how that will weigh into uh, to shaping uh, this campaign. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a, a fascinating discussion. We did a big article a couple of months ago at Gotham Gazette on sort of what's the what's the electorate going to look like for the Democratic mayoral primary. Uh, there's a lot of open question marks, given that the demographics of the city have been changing since the last open mayoral race in 2013. We can't really bank on anything repeating itself from, you know, the Democratic gubernatorial and state primaries of 2018. Uh, we really just don't know. We can we can base some things, and we'll get the the real scholars' uh, take on this very soon uh, when he joins us. But 
you know, there's a lot of unknowns. The move to a June primary from what's typically been September, the addition of ranked choice voting, the 400 plus candidates running for various offices and, and their efforts to, um, you know, bring people out to the polls, the aftermath and ongoing COVID crises that we're facing. There's just a lot of a lot of interesting uh, elements to what the electorate will look like here. So it'll be good to dig into that a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, where are we here, Jared, in this mayoral race? What's the what's the latest things that have been grabbing your attention and how are you thinking about where we're at? Well, I'm really interested. I'm going to watch the Republican debate tonight, which is at 7 p.m. with uh, Curtis Lewa and Fernando Mateo, the two Republicans who are vying for that nomination. Um, it is unlikely, it seems at the stage, that there will be a very competitive general election race, but we just don't know. As Ben mentioned, for the first time in a very long time, we have a June primary, so a very long lead up to the November general. A lot can happen in that time. And that's, you know, one of, uh, I think, three debates we'll have at the top level in the next 10 days. There's a second Democratic debate on June 2nd, which I think is next Wednesday, and then another Republican debate on June 6th, which is uh, a week from this Sunday. So within the next 10 days or so, you're going to have, you know, four, uh, you'll have your, your first four debates uh, under the belt of this campaign. And so I think that's really interesting. And obviously that's coming uh, against the backdrop of increasing number of polls coming out, showing some similar trends and then some different themes. And, and Ben, I know you've been paying attention to as well, just over the past couple of days, polls showing that perhaps Catherine Garcia has moved into a lead or, or a veritable tie with Eric Adams, um, but definitely a sense that uh, Andrew Yang seems to be slipping a little bit, um, that Garcia is surging, um, and that perhaps other candidates are moving around uh, as well. Maya Wiley, Diane Morales, and Scott Stringer kind of rounding out the, the list of the top five or six candidates. But uh, I think that's really interesting just in terms of you know shifting this from what seemed to be, it appears shifting it from what seemed to be a two-person race uh, Adams versus Yang uh, to one that's obviously a much more fluid and much more complicated. Yeah, you know, I mean, given the the large percentages of undecided in all these polls, you know, I've, I've always felt like Yang and Adams were showing themselves to be fairly strong early on, but that it was a wide open race, obviously expecting various things to shift. Wasn't necessarily expecting these sexual harassment and assault allegations against Scott Stringer from um, incidents alleged to have happened in 2001 that he's denied that have at least somewhat derailed his his campaign. But while I wasn't expecting that specifically, we were, of course, all expecting different things to happen to shift the shape of the campaign. That's been one of them. There have been some big endorsements like Catherine Garcia getting the New York Times editorial board, which was fairly surprising, I think, to a lot of people and has been. We don't know if it's a temporary thing. We don't know where things will wind up, but it's been one of the more remarkable instances of an endorsement really giving a campaign a bounce and a boost. Um, and I'm not even talking about polling. You know, they had the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the campaign's biggest 24 hours of fundraising after that. Uh, the media is paying so much more attention to her, generally speaking. You know, just the, the atmosphere around the campaign, it was followed up pretty quickly by the Daily News editorial board endorsing her. Then she got a couple state legislators to endorse her. And it just this momentum really took off after the Times backed her. And so just a variety of things happening that um, 
that have shifted the race at least a bit, and I expect it to shift multiple times. There's still big percentages of undecided voters. As far as I'm concerned, you know, we have these top eight candidates. It's really hard to see, you know, a path to victory for Ray McGuire and Sean Donovan at this point. I would probably also say the same for Diane Morales. I'm not saying any of them can't win, uh, but mm-hmm. they're both, you know, I think in, you know, have have some real challenges ahead of them to get there. And then I think at the other five, you know, it's pretty wide open and, and things could, you know, go in different directions. I, I, there's all sorts of caveats to that. That's a very, very broad assessment. But I think, um, you know, I think it is a, a wide open race. You'd rather be Eric Adams right now than anybody else, probably. But um, but I do think it's wide open. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see how that affects the dynamics in the next debate among the Democratic candidates. It was pretty clear in the first one uh, last week that um, people were going after Andrew Yang and, to some extent, uh, Eric Adams, their rival candidates, kind of directing pointed questions to them or referencing what they saw as weak points in those candidates' platforms in their own answers. Um, The fact that you now have, you know, those two certainly still near the lead, but Catherine Garcia moving into it, uh, into, you know, kind of a, a third member of the top tier of candidates, if you want to call it that. It'll be interesting to see how that affects uh, the interplay among candidates and, on the campaign trail, whether they'll get tougher on her and, and she tougher on them. And obviously today, you mentioned, obviously, she is uh, a candidate who is trailed, but Diane Morales, her campaign was thrown into some discord with the um, very public departure of a major uh, staffer uh, in a disagreement about um, alleged mistreatment of staff members. It's not clear who that was by. Um, you know, that's an interesting thing to have played out in the open. Having worked on a few campaigns in my youth, I would say they're always intense. There's always a lot of discord and some tremendous personalities clashing under a great deal of pressure. Um, the fact that Morales is, has been thrown into the spotlight uh, might be a little unfair because there's probably a lot of stuff behind the scenes in other campaigns too, but certainly it's another um, headline for her that distracts from her message, which is, you know, like it or not, probably the most progressive in the race and and certainly among the more the more interesting I've heard in my time covering city politics. So uh, an ill-timed, um, ill-timed bad headline for Dan Morales. Indeed. And, you know, it, she's uh, obviously, and we've said this to her when she's joined us on the show, she's obviously defied a lot of expectations. I think some of what's perhaps happening within the campaign is a little bit of uh, the challenges with, you know, how how fast the campaign did, was able to sort of accumulate donors and volunteers and, you know, became a went from a small, you know, operation with with volunteers signing up to, you know, something much more formidable and right in that top tier. And that comes with a lot of challenges of, of management. And at the same time, I mean, any of these campaigns have lots of challenges around that and, and there can be a lot of conflict. And, um, you know, it seems like there was there has been some serious conflict within her campaign. It'll be interesting to see how much, you know, it derails her. It's clearly been a, a bumpy week. She's canceled on some appearances. Um, things are not not looking great for her. And we'll see how she's able to rebound or not. Um, I, I'm curious, Jared, I wanted to ask you and this, we'll get into this a little bit. Uh, with John Malenkoff, but um, how you're sort of seeing the, you know, this question around kind of the lanes in the in the field. Um, there's, 
you know, I don't think a lot of voters think this way, but, you know, there's sort of a group of more moderate Democrats in this top eight. There's a group of the more progressives. They're sort of battling each other for different segments of the, you know, the electorate. And then, of course, ideology is also then overlaid with, uh, you know, demographics around gender and race and ethnicity and borough and all sorts of things. But is there a certain way you're sort of thinking about who's where and 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 potent, you know, the other thing is this sort of potential alliances under ranked choice voting that we need to be looking at or thinking about, or if they're not alliances, it's it's just competition. Right. Well, I think that is the huge question is to what degree will ranked choice voting allow for um, coalitions to form after the first round that have the effect of um, truly reflecting the strength of the different camps you've talked about, the centrists and the progressives to kind of cruelly divide the electorate up. I've been struck by the fact that the three candidates who we now are talking about as being in the best position in the race are, I think it's fair to say, three of the centrist candidates. It's Garcia, Adams, and Yang. Um, there are certainly progressive elements of their platform. In many ways, they are all more progressive than candidates were, you know, eight or 12 years ago in the Democratic Party. But definitely compared to the rest, they are more at the center. And the fact that the three of them are vying for the lead is, I think, very interesting in a city and an era when, for a long time anyway, it felt like progressives were ascendant. Um, looking at recent polls, it seems like Morales and Wiley and Stringer sort of the three big name progressives in the race, their combined strength uh, would eclipse that of any of the individual centrist candidates. Um, and so the big question is, you know, will the ranked voting show that? Will enough people rank and will they rank in a way that um, that demonstrates that despite having, you know, uh, uh, attachments to one particular candidate, people have a philosophical bent. And of course, that gets very complicated because it's not just ideology that drives votes, it's personality, it's, you know, concerns about uh, competency. Um, obviously, Scott Stringer and the allegations against him introduce an entirely different element into the race. Um, but I think one of the big questions is simply, you know, will ranked voting do what it is expected to do? And that is to allow a coalescence of um, support around candidates that share some broad similarities to first round choices that fall out of the running. I think that is, you know, something, frankly, I'm going to be fascinated to see whenever we finally do see the results uh, after June 22nd. Indeed. And there's so much more to break down there. We will do some of that in terms of the, what the electorate may look like uh, with John Malakoff in a minute. But, um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things we're seeing right now is this this interplay between a narrative around Andrew Yang's campaign stunting a bit and Catherine Garcia surging and what that sort of dual narrative is going to do to the race. Uh, Yang has continued to pick up endorsements. He got a really nice one from State Senator John Liu, who in 2013 tried to do what Yang is trying to do this year, which has become the first Asian-American mayor of New York City. Um, that was a good pickup for Yang, certainly, as he tries to expand the electorate, including by increasing the voter turnout among Asian voters in the city. Uh, but, you know, I'm very intrigued to see the turns that the Yang campaign may take here. He's already become a little more sharp elbowed towards both Adams and today Garcia in some of his comments. And uh, again, we're just getting into the 
you know, the fifth or sixth inning here of this race. <laughs> well, welcome someone who's given quite a bit to uh, to me as a source, to the city as a scholar, and that's John Mollenkopf, who directs the Center for Urban Research and is a distinguished professor of political science and sociology at the Graduate Center at CUNY, and there he coordinates its interdisciplinary concentration in public policy and urban studies. He's authored or edited 15 books on urban politics, urban policy, immigration, and New York City. One of them is a classic, I think, of urban politics in New York City, A Phoenix in the Ashes, a book that was on my reading list early in my time at Fordham University. And uh, it's been my pleasure to read John and talk to him many times over the years. John, welcome to Max and Murphy. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you guys. So we want to get into some of the demographics that might um, underlay the campaign that's playing out now, the results in June. Uh, and so we're going to talk about kind of how race and, and ethnicity and other things factor into uh, the political realities we deal with in New York City. Talk, though, John, just for a moment for those who are uninitiated and, and even for me in terms of methodology, when we're looking at voting results and trying to understand the demographics demographic underpinnings. How do you do that? Obviously, we don't identify our race when we mark our ballot up. So how are you able to draw conclusions about where people's support came from? Well, you might think that it would come from exit polls uh, as one source. And usually they do ask a broad race question on the exit polls. But the exit pollsters don't really know what kind of sample they're getting, and they have to calibrate it against something. And so what do you calibrate it against? One possibility is the American uh, Community Survey combined microdata files, which allow you to look very carefully at the race and ethnicity and many other factors of voting age citizens. Um, But of course, voting age citizens are very different from registered voters. There are about 5 million voting age, I mean, about 5 million registered voters on the list. Um, There are many more than that who are are total voting age citizens uh, in the city are about 5.2 million people. But a lot of the people on the voter registration list are not really active. 20% of them or so haven't voted in a long time, and maybe they're um, departed in some way. Um, Then, uh, and of course, the voter file does not record your your race. They, They ask you your sex and your age and your address and your party registration, but not not race. So you have to interpolate race in some way. And the way we generally do it is to geocode the voter file so we know exactly what block and census tract you live in. And then we know the racial composition of the voting age citizens uh, in that tract. And so then we can parse people. There's a lot of segregation in New York City. So you can kind of make a, a rough guess as to the racial background round of the people who actually do cast votes in Democratic primary elections. You can you can know where it comes from. The voter history file tells you who votes in each election. And so we know we can identify the people who voted in recent primaries and figure out where they live and sum them up by their geography. That's basically the way I do it. 
And so you referred a couple times to to race and, and obviously ethnicity gets in there, too. And, and I'm, I guess I wonder, is that the only thing we can look at? Is that the only thing that makes sense to look at? Because you could obviously, you know, look at the city and and talk about how uh, uh, age or income or education, religion, right. whether you're native or foreign born. seems like there might be other democratic demographic yeah. slices that might make sense, but those might be harder to get at. No, no, because you have all those figures for the census tracts that people live in, and it's normally because the press and public opinion tend to put people in oversimplified um, racial and ethnic categories, and people want to know about that, that, that I tend to compile the vote in that way. But you're absolutely right that many other factors affect the likelihood of voting and also who people tend to vote for. And when I'm analyzing the vote generally, I'm I'm building multivariate models that have lots of different individual and neighborhood factors um, built, built into the models. And for example, I would say that level of education or having a college education or more is probably the single strongest factor associated with um, turnout in city elections or in elections generally. Interesting. And I guess. And obviously, things like income and home ownership. Um, you know, homeowners are much more likely to vote than, than tenants, re- uh, renters, because homeowners, you know, get their tax bills and they know what it costs to be a resident of the city in terms of what you have to pay city government. Uh, but that's hidden for renters, and they're less less sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. And it stands to reason, I think, to or maybe to oversimplify a bit that that the work of understanding this is both understanding how groups are are tending. You know, if if um, black voters are becoming generally more Democratic or more Republican. That's one element. And the other is then seeing, you know, how much of the electorate is comprised of those groups, right? If, if the number of right. black voters so is I rising or falling. I think there are two distinct challenges in figure, fig, figuring this out. One is who's going to vote. And the other is how do the people who do vote choose? And the, the party choices are very strongly correlated with race and ethnicity. So... Democrat, African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans and other black voters are like 90 percent Democrats. Um, this is for general elections, obviously. The whites are much more um, 50-50. And Latinos are, are less Democratic than, than blacks, but more Democratic than um, than white, non-Hispanic whites. So race, race is a good kind of shortcut to guessing how people are going to vote in the general election. Within the Democratic primary, um, it's more more complicated, although there still has been a lot of racial polarization in the past inside of Democratic primaries in New York City mayoral elections, because there have been a, a lot of, of, of white voters from various backgrounds who've been resistant to supporting um, black or Latino candidates. Um, de Blasio really departed from that in 2013 because he got a lot of white liberal support and a lot of black support uh, in the primary, and he seems to have won more black votes than his 
competitor in the race, William Thompson, who who is African American with some Afro Caribbean background, and you know was also a citywide office holder. <clears throat> And that's, I mean, the, the, I think the, the way that is sometimes referred to is that de Blasio, to some degree, reconstructed the Dinkins coalition, right, of did, white definitely. progressives and, and blacks and some, some Latinos. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, although, so, I mean, although thinking about... Although have labor support, which Dinkins did have, the, 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 the lining up of many of the uh, labor unions that have political interests at the city and the state to encourage David Dinkins to run in 1989 was was a factor in his decision to do it. And um, de Blasio ended up only getting a couple of of unions in his primary campaign. They all came together behind him, of course, in the general election. Right. So since 2013, which was the last open uh, mayoral race, the last big municipal race, what would you say have been the the demographic trends that stand out to you as potentially being significant now in terms of population movements into and out of the city and, and different groups uh, and how you know how they how they make up the composition of what we think the electorate is? I'm not a demographic determinist, uh, <laughs> but demography does really shape what you can do provides opportunities and it places constraints so one thing that i don't think people are that aware of is that the white population has not the white voting citizen age population has not been declining in absolute numbers in new york city that was the story of the you know 60s 70s 80s 90s there was a lot of white decline and basically in the 21st century that stopped happening but within the white uh, voting age citizen population, there's been a very substantial change with the decline of uh, the older white ethnic groups, the, the people whose parents might have come to the United States from, you know, 1880 to 1930 or whatever, who, uh, or, or even right after World War II. Um, for example, the number of Italian-American native-born uh, voting age citizens dropped by a quarter between 2000 and the present. And, you know, the other, other Im- immigrant ethnic groups like Irish and many of the Jewish ancestries and German, they also, they also declined, not as dramatically as the Italian-American population. So, and those group, Italians were more Republican than some of the other groups were, but they were all basically more Democratic than Republican in their orientation, but they also, you know, they were Giuliani Democrats or they were Koch Democrats. They were relatively conservative. So the, 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 the white outer borough, blue collar or, um, you know, small business, um, relatively conservative part of the white electorate has been dwindling and, uh, you know, the millennials, the baby boomers, the people in the professions, um, um, people who are drawn to New York City by all its various um, attractions, that component has been growing. And 
they've been settling instead of moving out to Scarsdale or whatever when they had children they're they've been staying in New York City and and they're the for the demographic force behind the change in neighborhoods like like Astoria or Park Slope or even Crown Heights or Bed-Stuy at this point and um so they they are a rising force and and in general I think that they've been um, progressive in their political orientation. If you make a map of where Bernie Sanders got his votes in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, it's also correlates very highly with the growth of you know, younger, white, professional, highly educated um, residents. So the nature of the white vote has changed and it's, it's shifted significantly in a progressive direction and away from a conservative direction. The other thing is that the other old-time racial ethnic groups in the city are also declining. So the Puerto Rican population is declining. The African-American population is declining. Um, and among Latinos, the immigrant groups are the rise. John? We seem to have lost John Moncop for the moment. We're going to try to get him back, um, but that happened just in time for our station break. It's uh, just about 5.30. You're listening to The Max and Murphy Show on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org here with Ben Max from GothamGazette.com, and we've been talking about the demographics that helped to shape election outcomes in New York City, and we're just about to get into some of the trends that might be shaping the outcome uh, this year uh, in a race where you have uh, a lot of uh, candidates that themselves represent uh, important communities in the city, um, and obviously a lot of changes in terms of uh, the composition of those groups, and that would be part of the, the fascinating stuff that plays out come June 22nd, and, and again in November, but we're going to try to get uh, John Mollenkopf back. Ben Max, uh, what you've heard so far, any reactions, anything sticking out in your head? Well, I think one of the most important things as we look at this year's election, which is obviously such a big focus, and we're heading very close to early voting and primary day in June with absentee balloting already already under the, underway, is this changing electorate, the electorate, especially the Democratic electorate, becoming more and more people of color, more dominated by black voters, lots obviously also of Latino voters in the Democratic uh, electorate in the city. Uh, you really can't win a citywide race without voters of color in New York City. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this mayoral race we're watching is you you talked about it with John a moment ago, but you know the, the de Blasio coalition that we saw in 2013 that got him about 40% of the vote in the primary, you know, a fairly crowded primary like we're seeing this year, a little less crowded than this year in terms of the top tier of candidates. But you know, the coalition that got him 40 percent was a whole lot of white voters and a lot of black voters. He did pretty well with Latino voters. Um, and and, you know, he was able to really assemble a multiracial coalition. And it's really just not clear at this point who in this year's Democratic field can do that. 
Right. And obviously the denominator counts too, right? I mean, the turnout, as John was referring to, is not just sort of the the candidate's appeal to a particular group um, and how unified a group might be in supporting one candidate. Obviously, no group is a monolith, but to what extent they actually are willing to turn out for them um, is is part of it too. And, you know, I think that's what makes uh, the question I was just about to ask John, and hopefully we'll have a chance to, is about the city's Asian American community, which is, you know, has been growing in number. Um, I think the number of registered voters is going to trail that because many of the newcomers are immigrants who cannot yet vote. Um, but it is, you know, an, an important and growing group, but still relatively small compared to uh, blacks and Latinos and, and white voters. But obviously, if Yang is able to present uh, a unified front um, with his ideas and with his position as an ethnic pioneer, you know, in a tight race, that can still be important. I think it's like 2.5 percent of the electorate uh, according to some of the numbers John sent over, but that can, that can certainly matter in a race where the polls are suggesting candidates might be just a couple points away from each other. So I think yeah, that's a big part of it too, is the, is the turnout factor. Right. So, so in that last wide open mayoral race in 2013, we saw fewer than 700,000 votes cast. Now, uh, there are a lot more registered voters. Uh, involvement in politics has been up significantly in the sort of Trump, post-Trump era. Um, there's there's just been a lot of changes to New York voting and election laws to actually help encourage uh, turnout. Right, so early, early voting be, being, being chief yeah, among them, yeah. This will yep. be an, an interesting test of that. Um, you know, in terms of this year's electorate, there's some projections out there that say in the Democratic primary that the Asian vote might be somewhere between five and eight percent. I think, you know, Andrew Yang is certainly trying to get it up towards six, seven, eight percent. And that would be pretty significant, potentially. Um, you know, I've seen some projections and we've reported on this that, you know, the the white electorate will be somewhere around a third to to two fifths and, and a third black and then about 20 percent Hispanic Latino. So, uh, you know, those are those are some rough sketches and we really won't know in part because um you know in part because we just don't know what turnout will will really look like if if the overall turnout goes from under 700,000 that it was in 2013 in the primary to closer to 900,000 uh you know that'll be a very different electorate and obviously a lot's changed in 8 years in terms of the the political moments and the awareness of the importance of, of voting, uh, you know, it's yet to be seen if that'll translate into the most local elections, though. Um, but we have seen some encouraging signs in terms of the not just the presidential election, but also the state elections in 2018 saw a pretty big jump. And I think one thing I'm interested in, too, and I think there's no way to know this and maybe we'll never know, but one of the demographic trends that people suspect has occurred in the past year, and there's certainly some evidence that it did, at least on a temporary basis, is people leaving the city because of COVID. Um, And obviously, some of those people have returned. Many of them may have maintained their New York City voting status and may still want to exercise it. But obviously, the extent to which registered voters departed the city and any kind of ethnic or ideological skew to that um, is a potential factor as well. But I'm told we have John Molokov back. John, welcome back to Max and Murphy. Yes, some gremlin must have eaten the phone line. <laughs> there, yes. Well, yeah. What, what your dishing was pretty good. So I'm sorry we got interrupted, but uh, just want to ask one more question before I turn you over to my broadcast partner, and that is uh, about the um, the city's Latino community is interesting to me and how it might. Uh, 
behave in this election. You have Diane Morales uh, among the big eight candidates um, as someone who has Latino heritage. Um, Scott Stringer has talked about the Latino connections in his own family, his his stepfather and, and relatives of his um, who have Latino heritage. He has talked about that as having shaped his worldview. Obviously, Catherine Garcia identifies as white, but her surname could, could be read as Latino. Um, what is there to guide us in terms of Latino voters? You've mentioned Puerto Ricans being less of that group over the years? Uh, do they tend to vote in a block? Um, are they are they divided along lines of, of nationality or age or religion? What, what should we think about when we're looking at the Latino factor in this race? Well, the Latino population of New York City has become extremely diverse, and you might even say fragmented, both in terms of national origin and in terms of where different groups are concentrated in the city. So... Traditionally, the Puerto Ricans were the, the overwhelmingly large share of the Latino population. If we're talking, you know, the arrival in the 50s and 60s and beginning to ascend in the 70s and 80s. But as as uh, as the group became more successful and began to move to the suburbs and um, the city recovered and Im- immigration was stepped up, um, Puerto Ricans have have become less and less of a factor in uh, in the overall you know Latino population so um, about a quarter of the voting age citizens of New York City are Latino but um, Puerto Ricans are less than half of that group at this point um, considerably less than than half of it so um, and, you know, depending on what the issue is and what the appeal is, the group can be cohesive and tend to vote in the same direction. But there are also a lot of a lot of differences. And as you get down to the ground level, there can be some real competition. Um, if you look at the Bronx, for example, which has historically been the power base of, of Puerto Rican um elected officials in New York City. Um, Puerto Ricans now make up, um, let me just look at this number for a second. Um, so Latino Latinos are more than half of the voting age citizens uh, in the Bronx, but Puerto Ricans only make up half of that group. And Dominicans have been rising very rapidly and the Puerto Rican voting population has been declining. So, you know, the potential for competition between Dominicans and Puerto Ricans is is there. I mean, the potential for cooperation is there for sure, too. Um, But to the extent that rising generations want to climb the ladder and the person on the step above them is Puerto Rican and they're Dominican, um, you know, the potential for some sort of ethnic mobilization is is definitely is definitely present. Um, because of this fragmentation, I think it's been hard to really gel the whole community around one one candidate and it, it's been since you know Fernando Ferrer ran for mayor um, now quite some time ago that, that we had a, a high profile you know articulate impressive um, Latino citywide candidate that has 
a lot of support from different quarters who's capable of of unifying all the different segments of the of the Latino um, electorate. So I, I don't and I don't see that happening. Um, if you look at the endorsements, they're they're going in a number of different directions, and uh, Latina candidate is not necessarily the one that's gotten those endorsements. So I, I don't think that this is going to be a surge election for um, Latino voters in New York City. And hey, John, it's Ben Max from from Gotham. Hi, ben. Good to good to talk with you again. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, let's let's shift from the Latino electorate uh, to the to the Asian electorate. Andrew Yang, obviously, trying to become the first Asian American mayor of New York City. Something John Liu tried in 2013. Liu just endorsed Yang, of course. Um, but what's your what's your read on the Asian American electorate in uh, this primary and and sort of the elasticity there? What? the potential is for for Yang to draw out a larger uh, Asian American vote. Uh, what what do you you know what do you think about sort of the what's the g- general expectation and what's the ceiling there? Well, in terms of what the ceiling is, if you look citywide at the voting age citizen population, the, the Asian population is growing rapidly among the potential voters. It, basically doubled between 2000 and the present. And now it makes up about 13% of all the potential voters. But there are two things to consider here. One is that the the national origin composition of the, of the population that the census classifies as Asian is much more diverse even than, than the Latino group. So to to. To think that somebody who's an immigrant from um, southern China has something in common from somebody who's an immigrant from Kerala state in India um, can't be can't be assumed. Just you know, despite their fact, they're both classified as as Asian. So the the biggest part of the Asian electorate is Chinese. The Chinese immigration has been. Um, ongoing at fairly high levels. Um, Chinese or uh, uh, people classified as Asian Chinese race make up about 6.2% of the potential citywide electorate at this point. But the Chinese voters tend are more prone than any other group not to select a party when they register. So the, mm. the share of Democrats among the registered Chinese is is low compared to just about every other every other group. And then you have language issues that um, probably most of the people who speak Chinese at home in New York City these days have, you know, especially the elders have less contact with English language media, whereas the Spanish-speaking households, which are probably roughly roughly a quarter of the total, um, they're probably all quite bilingual at this point, although there are obviously some recent immigrants who, who wouldn't be. So the combination of um, newness to party politics, the diversity of language, language and cultural backgrounds among Asians, um, the fact that they haven't 
learned that the China, that the Democratic Party is the route to political influence, always in New York City, uh, makes it unlikely that there'll be a cross-the-board pan-Asian mobilization within the Democratic Party. But there are a lot of Chinese Democrats, there are a lot of Korean Democrats, Bangladeshi, Indian, um, other, other Asian Filipino, there's a substantial Filipino population in the city. Um, so, and, and there, and a number of these communities are pretty highly educated and are, have, have learned about New York City politics. And I do think that Yang, as an immigrant origin person, is going to appeal to the <clears throat> upwardly mobile parts of these, maybe not to the um, most recently immigrated, most living in their home culture parts of the communities, but um, there's been a tremendous success of the of the of the of the Indian and Chinese and other second generation Korean second generations from these immigrant groups, even when the which parents is, were, right. you know, restricted mm-hmm. to um, ethnic jobs, um, they they could be an emerging force, and and I think Yang does appeal to them. Right, Yang himself as a second generation uh, American with his parents as immigrants. All right, last question, John, before we say goodbye, even though we could talk to you for hours about this. um, What um, what what role does age uh, and age stratification play in the electorate? Um, Obviously, the electorate tends to skew significantly older, but um, it seems like we've seen a little bit of of a shift towards a younger electorate in the city recently. What's the top line um, thoughts to to think about as we approach this vote in terms of age stratification? I mean, the top line is there is now and has been for a long time a, a real strong age gradient in voter participation, both among Democrats in the primary and in the electorate generally. And the median age of of voters in Democratic primaries um, is is quite old. It's um, you know like 56 or something like that. And it's also quite female. It's probably the Democratic primary electorate is going to be you know 58 percent uh, women, female. And right. um, and the longer you've lived in New York City, and the older you are, the more you know about politics, and more you're connected to people who might mobilize you, the more likely you are you are to vote. And young people are often very transient and making their careers and, you know, thinking about other things than getting engaged in in city politics. One caveat to that is the arrival of the white millennial professionals who um, are not not in the advanced corporate services like banking and corporate law, generally speaking, but in all of the other kind of uh, nonprofit government advocacy, cultural stuff, and there are a lot of them, and they're they're quite politicized, and they have been in a force, and like in Western Queens and the AOC victory, I think that they played a very real role, and that potentially they could play a role in this election as well. Yeah. Well, they certainly will play a role in some of the city council races and and clearly maybe some borough president races and the role, the extent of the role in the in the citywide races will be uh, to be seen. But um, John Mollenkopf, thanks so much for Always taking the time pleasure. with us. I, I love listening to you guys and learning from you. And so thank you for, very much for what you're doing. Well, thank likewise you. to you. Thanks, John. Take care.